All right, well, we're going to get going tonight with the, uh, with the subject. It's our last night, and so I might as well start by thanking everyone who made an effort to come to these. I noticed as the weather got nicer, the numbers got worse. Um, I'm sure there's no correlation there at all. But you're here, so you get an extra reward someday. Maybe. You just have nicer families, I guess. No. The entire series has been a discussion on restoring the vertical family. What did we say a vertical relationship was? Defining a vertical relationship when all other horizontal or human relationships are subordinate to one's relationship with the one true God who has revealed himself in Scripture. We have to be very specific about who we mean when we say God these days, right? Society might say God and mean it in a completely different way, but we mean the one true God who has revealed himself in the Holy Scriptures. And so we've noticed uh, for the last, how many weeks? Five? Six, because we had a week off. This idea of a vertical relationship that included some of the key points First of all, restoring our focus, our vertical focus, making God first in all relationships in life. Secondly, our communication. How we communicate horizontally has everything to do with our relationship with God. Third, intimacy. Fourth, leadership and gender roles. Fifth, discipline. That was last week. That was a fun week, wasn't it? And finally, tonight, our last, but definitely not least, in fact, I would say this is probably the most important subject of all, that is the subject of worship, which is really what vertical relationships and ver the vertical family is all about. It is about worship. We're going to look at that tonight. Um, and we noticed that last week, that one of the goals of raising children is to train them up, not just to be good, moral people that can say please and thank you and pass the salt. But we are raising a new generation of worshipers. We don't even want people that just go out and stand for truth. That'd be great, but again, it would be incomplete. We want people that stand for truth because of the God that they're in love with. We want to raise a new generation of worshipers, people who chase after God with all their heart. That was the problem in Revelation 1 or Revelation 2, I think, sorry, uh, with the church in Ephesus. It had become a church that stood for truth, but it had lost its first love, its initial love. It had lost its worship. We don't want that. We want to raise another generation of people that love God more than anything else. And here's a, here's a crazy statistic, a very sobering statistic. You see, Christianity is the only religion in the world that is always just one generation away from extinction. Most other religions in the world, you, if you're born into that religion, you are that religion. That's not so with the gospel. It's not so with biblical Christianity. Just because you're born into a Christian home does not make you a Christian. It's not in your DNA. Your DNA actually is the opposite of that. You're born a rebel against God. No. Each person needs to be born again as a child of God. And it's amazing 
that of all the religions in the world, the one that is just always one generation away from being extinct is still alive and kicking today. It says something about the power of God through the gospel. But it should sober us up a bit, and it warrants an entire night to highlight it, and that's what we're going to do tonight. I remember when we had our first child back in 2004. I remember when we found out we were expecting our first child, and suddenly our life that seemed to be going along great and smooth, and we were all about comfort and building a career and everything else, all of a sudden there was this weight that just came on us that we had never felt before because you see this tiny human being that was about to enter our lives and enter the world was going to exist forever somewhere. That cute, cuddly bundle of joy would eventually stand before God. And we are called by God, and all of you as parents are called by God to prepare that bundle of joy for that moment when they stand before God. Eternity is a game changer in raising children. And that's not just true for parents, it's true for all people, all members of the church, that it does, as Pastor Chris said on, on Sunday, I believe, it does take a church to raise our children. It does. Eternity is a game changer in raising our kids. One of the most powerful pieces of evidence that the Bible, for the Bible's relevance is people who obey God's word and live it out and experience the blessings that are promised. You see, obeying is difficult. This, these past few weeks, we have not in any way offered simple solutions to your problems. Snap your fingers, 10-step programs, you know, uh, name it and claim it. We're not in any way presenting any kind of easy type of solution to all of your relationship problems. That's not the case. The Bible calls us to discipleship. Discipleship says that we die to self. Obedience is difficult, but at the same time, the results are worth it in marriage, in the family, and in all of our relationships throughout, whether it's other family or the church family. In all of our relationships, obedience is difficult, but the results are worthwhile. And when the world, when the culture looks on and sees a truly vertical family that is repentant, that is chasing after God, that is worshiping Him with all their heart, they are real-life proof that the Bible works. They are. People can see it and say, there's something about you that's different. I don't know what it is, but there's something that's different. The Bible works. So tonight, consider this a call to arms. This is a call to arms tonight, to soldiers of Christ, to get up, to march forward in the fight of our lives for the next generation. That's what we're about. Before we get into the idea of worship and the subject of worship tonight, we're just going to ask the Lord to help us. So let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful that you've allowed us to have the church open the last number of weeks to be able to teach uh, truth from your word concerning horizontal relationships that are placed under subjection to your lordship. And we just ask that tonight would be no different, that you would challenge us again, that you would convict us, that we would have our perspective reset, reprogrammed, and that the word of God would penetrate our minds, our hearts, 
and change our direction and encourage us, Lord, if we're already following these things and pursuing these things, we do know that obeying your word is difficult. It's not easy. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit in us that moves us to obey and empowers us to obey. And yet, Lord, in the difficulty, we just ask that you would encourage us tonight as well as challenging and convicting us. And we thank you again for salvation through Jesus. We thank you that everything we've been talking about for the last number of weeks is all because he is redeeming creation to himself. And we ask that our lives and our relationships would bring glory to his name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, tonight where we're going to start is with the, uh, just the very basic concept of worship. What is it? And the first thing we're going to notice is that everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. What is worship? It's not merely a religious term. In fact, it comes from an old English word, worth-ship, which eventually just got shortcutted to worship. And what it means is to attribute worth to something, and something ultimately worthwhile. Something, that something is known as an object of worship. Our object, what we are focused on in our worship, it's what we seek, it's what we believe will save us, will make us happy, will satisfy us, and so on. That is what worship is. Everyone places ultimate value in something. Everyone does. You can't avoid that. You wouldn't be alive if you didn't have something worth living for. You wouldn't be alive. And so Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in other words, what you see as being worth something, ultimate, is where your heart is going to be. Your affections are going to be drawn out to that, as you can see in the image on the screen. This guy is worshiping. Now I was just last week watching the end of... Uh, one of the Leafs games, just the third period with the boys, and uh, it was one of the games that they came back and one of the goals that was scored, watching a big crucial moment, didn't last long obviously, but it was nice while it lasted, 19,000 plus fans are on their feet, hands in the air, screaming at the top of their lungs, shouting, cheering with reckless abandon, no worry of who was watching them, even though the whole world, or it's, on the, it's, it's obviously on television. It's being televised. They don't care. They're totally focused on what's worth something to them. And uh, I just happened to mention the boys. I said, see those guys? See those people? They're worshiping. There's a little bit of confusion. What do you mean they're worshiping? How do, how do you mean? We always think of worship as being in church. They're worshiping. How could this be? However, this got me thinking as I was trying to explain to them what worship is and how it works. It got me thinking about what worship looks like for a sports fan. Okay? Now, I'm going to just stop and think about a diehard Maple Leafs fan, but I think we could even look at a diehard Red Wings fan right now because you're kind of in the same boat to some degree, frustratingly, right? But I want you to notice some characteristics about these people. All right. First of all, they openly display their allegiance through wearing the colors, and they will do it even in enemy territory. Right? Openly display, this is my team, and they'll do it in someone else's building. They don't care. Secondly, 
They will pay thousands of dollars for a ticket to go and gather with other like-minded people. I think the lowest price I heard in game seven on Saturday night, the lowest price to be way, 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 way up top in the arena was north of $400 per ticket, okay? People don't blink at it. I'll pay that, it's worth it. They'll travel long distances and take time off work to be there and to gather with other like-minded people. They will suffer ridicule from fans of other teams. They, especially in a city like Windsor, right? Leafs, wings. It's kind of, you, you suffer a little bit of ridicule depending on where you might work. They will stay loyal to their team even when it consistently fails to meet expectations. Enough said. Moving on. They talk about the team and the games to anyone who will listen. They study every fact about the team and its members. They know the statistics. They have it all down. They're researching. They're looking up things. What should the team do next? And then finally, they will get as close as they can to the team quite often, right? Oh, I got a hockey stick signed by fill in the blank, whatever. They'll get as close as they can to the team. In other words, worship is a lifestyle. You see all those characteristics? Does it ring any bells? Could you imagine if we as Christians were that fanatical about Jesus Christ and the glory of God? That we would be willing to openly display, pay thousands of dollars, travel anywhere, suffer ridicule, stay loyal, talk about it, study every fact, and get as close as we can to Christ. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 8, 34, after calling the crowd to him, or pardon me, this is Mark 8, I'm going to mislead you, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone's going to worship me, follow me, pursue me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, which was an execution tool, and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his fathers with the holy angels. Pretty much everything that a sports fan is called to do, Jesus says there's no other option. And this is the thing that I think we miss sometimes when we read through these verses in Mark 8. We seem to think that they are optional. That somehow you can be a disciple of Christ and not do these things. Not deny yourself and not take up my cross daily. No, no. As far as Jesus is concerned, there is no half-hearted Christianity. It's all or nothing. That's what it is. And so the object of family worship defines family dynamics. By the way, I'm going to put that verse up there which we already spoke about, Mark 6.20, or Matthew 6.21, pardon me, where your treasure is. Tonight we're not interested in what we say is the object of our worship. All of us as Christians want to sit in the building like this and say that our object of worship is Jesus Christ. We'd like to say that, but we're not so concerned tonight with what we say. We're going to be a little more concerned about how we live. 
and maybe what our kids would say about what we worship. So what defines the object of your family's worship? And what would, you, uh, what would your children say is most important or most valuable to you and to your family? There are many objects, and I'm just going to name a few. Obviously, sports, we've already spoken about that. It could be education, money, success, status, things or toys, travel, politics and government, pleasure, entertainment. None of those things on them, by themselves are wrong, but they are wrong as an object of worship. If they consume us, if that's what we chase after, if that's what we spend all of our time on and our money and so on, then it is wrong. So how would you know if your family is worshiping the one true God? How would you know what you worship as a family? Well, I'm just going to give us a few clues. Just going to throw these out there to maybe think about. The first one is, what type of boundaries have you set in your home? Most of us wouldn't put boundaries around reading the Bible. Like, no, son, one hour a day, that's it. That's all you get, okay? No, we don't normally have to put boundaries like that on our children, but we might put boundaries around how much television they watch or what type of television they watch or how much you know, time they have with video games or on the computer. Uh, we'll put boundaries around social media, maybe where the technology is in the home. We looked at discipline last week. So what kind of boundaries have we placed in the home where we say, you know what, you're spending a little much, too much effort in that area and not enough over here. Secondly, what do you talk about when you're together? What comes up in conversation just very naturally? Third, what do you spend most of your time at? Maybe as a family, maybe as just a dad or a mom. What do you spend most of your time at? What do the children look at you and see, that's what dad likes to do, that's what mom likes to do? What activities are most important in the life of your kids? What activities are most important in the life of your kids? Are we traveling from sports game to sports game to sports game to sports game? Is that, because that is a clue as to what we actually do worship. We spend 10, 15 hours a week on whatever it is. It could be education, it could be sports, it could be dance, whatever it is, and we, we're just pushing our kids in that direction. It's a little bit of a clue of, as to what we are chasing after and what the treasure of our heart is. Here's another one. What do you invest your money in? What do you spend your money on? Thousands of dollars for a playoff game? or tithing to the church, where does the money go? Nice car, right? we've got all the toys. Again, these are just clues, not necessarily worship, but they are clues as to what our heart is chasing after. Where do you go most often? It's another one. Where do you go most often? Where do, when people observe you, where are you normally? Where would they say you'd be found on a Friday night or on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday morning? What would your kids say is most important to you? Ask them. It'd be a good test. What would you say is 
most important in my life? Well, vertical families raise kids to pursue after God. And this is the key text tonight that we're going to be looking at and pulling apart a little bit, getting into some of the practical application of this text, but we're going to read it together. Uh, Pastor Aaron did mention this one last week in our conversation, and I knew it was coming up tonight, so here it is. Deuteronomy 6, Moses is speaking to the nation about to go into the promised land. It's a whole new generation of people, and he's preparing them for it, and the one thing he is most concerned about is what they worship. Because they could do all the Ten Commandments, they could fulfill all the law, and still be completely off base. So he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love, again, no options here, folks. This sentence is very clear, very plain. There's no other option. You shall love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? All your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Notice he repeats the word all three times. He doesn't just say with all your heart, soul, and might. He says with all, with all, with all. That's pretty clear. He's emphasizing something. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, as far as Moses is concerned and Scripture in uh, as a whole is concerned, there's no one more glorious, more majestic, more awesome, more fearsome, more beautiful, more valuable than the God who created all things and has revealed himself in his word and through his son. There's nothing more glorious that you could chase after, nothing more satisfying, nothing more fulfilling that you could chase after. There's no other option. So he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart your soul, and your strength. And this involves everyone. No exceptions. This is not just for the pastoral team of a church. It's one of the reasons why we've made it very important to have couples on this stage every week, a diverse set of couples up here with different ages, different categories, different backgrounds, different positions, and so on, to try and prove the point that the Christian life is for every single Christian. It's not just for those who are in pastoral ministry. It's for every Christian, every follower of Jesus Christ. There's no exceptions to this. He calls every committed follower to lay down their lives and die to themselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the New Testament, and that's the gospel that you embraced when you came to Christ and received him with saving faith. And that's where we find ourselves. So we're going to just go a little bit further now. We've tried to establish what worship is, and I hope by now this is starting to maybe weigh down your heart a little bit. It should. But I'll tell you, worship is the most fulfilling thing in the world, and we often just limit worship to Sunday morning only, 
And if you want to get even more specific, a lot of people think that worship only happens when we're singing together as a church, but that's not true. The entire process Sunday morning is worship. We're gathered to worship. When we're hearing God's word and submitting to it, we're worshiping. When a preacher is proclaiming God's word, he's worshiping. When we're praying together, we're worshiping. But wider than that, every day of the week and every hour that we are awake and that we are sleeping, we can live a life of worship. That's what Jesus calls us to, to pursue him with all our heart, our soul, and our strength. That's what worship is. It's finding worth in him above everything else. And worship is a heart issue. Proverbs 4, 23, the writer says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, this is a father speaking to his son. This is a heart issue. When it comes to raising kids, when it comes to obviously relating to our husband and our wife, it's a heart issue. And the writer is saying it's the heart that you must keep because it's out of that that everything else flows. So every word from our mouth, every action that we take, everywhere we go, everything we look at, it all echoes what's going on in our hearts and what our heart really loves and chases after. That's what it is. And the heart directs everything that we do and determines our behavior. That's why it's very important with children to get to the heart of why they did what they did and said what they said. And it's very important to get to that with them, not just us assuming or saying what it was, but asking them questions until we get to, why did you do that? Why did you hit your brother? What was going on in your heart? Why did you think that would solve anything? What did you think it would solve? And so on. The heart is built. First of all, I want to notice when it comes to a heart issue, and in every family relationship, this is true. It all stems back to the heart. Every behavioral issue is a heart issue. First of all, the heart is built to worship God. So Romans 1, Paul makes it very, very clear that what can be known about God is plain to basically pagan society. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. It's not something that's hidden from them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What do they do? They suppress the truth. That's what he says. Instead of turning to God, they turn away from God. And again, the heart was built, though, to worship God, primarily, until sin came in and smashed that to pieces. Two options, worship God, suppress truth. We're obviously living in a society today that wants to suppress truth. And that's why they have to yell louder and louder and louder and they can't make enough days in the calendar to celebrate their sin and their immorality and their way above God's way because they have to suppress the truth that they still know is true. They know it deep down in their heart. There's no such thing as an atheist. We all worship. In Romans 2, Paul says that when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, they might not know the Ten Commandments, when they by nature do the law, what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? That every one of us has the law written on our hearts. This little witness inside all of us, God-given witness, called the conscience. And it's there. And you can, you can see it in people who are, who are pushing against truth and trying to suppress truth. They still are moralizing. They're still telling you, how dare, you're a man, how dare you tell a woman what she does with her body? What is that? That's a moral standard. They have just put a moral standard on you. Wait a sec, what's your basis for morality? Why do you even think there's morality? Well, they have it. It's an instinct inside all of us. Even when we're running away from God, there's an instinct in all of us because there's a law written on our hearts. We're still moralizing. We're still saying, you should, you shouldn't. It's written on our hearts. The heart was intended to worship God, and Augustine said the heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee, O God. It was made for that. But the heart is corrupted by idol worship. We spend so much time as parents trying to protect our kids from the outside world. But here's the brutal truth. It's not the outside world that is going to destroy them. That will influence them, but it is what is inside their hearts that we should fear. Jeremiah 17:9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I have taught my kids from the time they were young, very little, do not trust your own heart. Your heart's going to tell you things. You're going to try and excuse your sin. You're going to try and make sense of it and say, yep, I should do this. You're going to reason with yourself. You're going to argue, argue yourself into that temptation. Don't trust your heart. It's deceitful above everything else. It wants to kill you. Mark 7 Jesus explained this to his disciples. They couldn't understand what he was talking about. He was watching the religious leaders washing their hands ceremonially uh, before a meal because they didn't want to defile themselves with the food. You know, there might be some evil spirits on our hands that could get into us and defile us and make us sin. Jesus says that's not how it works. It's not what goes in that hurts you. It's what comes out that hurts you. And the disciples were scratching their heads. They didn't even know what he meant. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it's expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean, but that's a side issue. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, this is how your little bundle of joy was born. This is how you were born. What comes out of a person, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's a long list that Jesus gave us. All of the ingredients, we share them. Maybe we share some more than others, but we share them. All these evil things, Jesus says, come from within, and they defile a person. So to not worship God is to worship something else. 
we will have idols, false gods, that we chase after that will destroy us. And Ted Tripp said that if a person is living as a fool who says in his heart that there is no God, he doesn't cease to be a worshiper. He simply worships, worships what is not God. And that's what we do. We turn our hearts away from God because our hearts are naturally deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean for the next generation? It means that they need transformation. They need a new heart. Ezekiel 36, God was speaking through the prophet, and he was speaking of a day that was coming. It's really the idea of the new covenant. Jesus would come, give his life, die, rise again. The Holy Spirit would come, and there would be a new kind of life, a new birth. We call it regeneration. That's the technical term. But Ezekiel 36, the prophet says, And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Listen to this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Just reminds me of one particular night in the life of Jesus when he met a religious ruler who had been thinking he was doing it right all his life. And this man was now getting up in age. He's older, very wealthy, very religious. And right out of the gate, Jesus makes it very clear to him, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. He was doing many good things, but his heart was still wicked. It had not been replaced, renewed, transformed. That's what our children need. They do need conversion, yes, but conversion is the beginning. It's not the main goal. The main goal is sanctification, transformation, that our children would be transformed beginning with conversion, but transformed into worshipers of the living God with a new heart, fresh desires, and a new willingness to serve and love God above everything else. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're aiming for. And that leads to doing everything right is no guarantee of success. Do you know why this is? It's because the heart is not neutral. The environment does not set the pathway for or guarantee success. I'll give you a little example. The Garden of Eden. <laughs> you don't get a better environment. You don't get less exposure to anything evil than the Garden of Eden. It was perfect. And Eve and Adam still turned away from God and rebelled. The heart is not neutral. And the hearts of the next generation are not neutral. The point is, though, that it's not just like last week about discipline. Yes, God uses that system to soften rebellious hearts. That's true. But we need to really focus and really emphasize this week that when it comes to 
our children's hearts, we're not merely trying to discipline them so that they submit to authority. Yes, that's great, but we are seeking to win their hearts for Jesus Christ so that he, by the Holy Spirit, can transform them. And that's why Proverbs 4.23 is so important. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We need to get to the heart of our children. All right, how do we do this? Well, we want to take a few moments tonight and just look very practically, and we're going to look deeper into Deuteronomy 6, the text we read already, and just notice some practical ways that we can lead our families in a spiritual formation, in nurturing them in a spiritual way that leads them towards faith in Christ. Again, it's no guarantee, the heart is not neutral, but there are a number of practical things that we can do to help them along and lead them towards Christ and not away from Christ. And that means to lead them with our lives, with everything that we are and everything that we do, because as we heard last week in our conversation afterward, we heard that Christianity is an imitative faith. That's what it is by its very nature. We are to imitate our leaders. We are to honor them. We are to follow them. And ultimately, we are to imitate them as they imitate Christ. That's what we are to do. It's an imitative faith. So how do we do this? Well, the first way is by example. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You notice that is said before Moses says anything about what we're supposed to do with teaching curriculums. We need to live this out before anything else. This is the challenge in this room tonight. It doesn't matter whether you're a parent, a grandparent, aunt, uncle, friend. It doesn't matter. Mentor, ministry leader. In every single case, before we go and try to influence anyone else, especially the next generation, we need to live this out by example. We need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. And home is the one place where you will not be able to hide hypocrisy. We can come to church, we can sit in the seats, we can sing all the songs, we can raise our hands, we can pray, we can go to small group for a few minutes, maybe every two weeks or once a month if it's a men's group. We can do all those things and we might be able to hide just what's going on on a daily basis, but you will not be able to hide hypocrisy in the home. You won't. Your kids are watching everything you do. They're watching everything. They're hearing everything. Moses tells the people that they need to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and might before they speak with their mouths to their children. So if you teach your kids to put God first and then replace an active role in the church with an active role in sports, you're not living what you preach. If you get excited and passionate when you're watching your favorite hockey team or your favorite basketball team or your favorite football team and you're yelling at the TV or you're cheering and the neighbors can hear you, but you're bored at church, falling asleep, fighting, looking at your watch, fighting boredom, you're showing by your example that, well, really what you really worship. And your kids are watching, they can see. It's obvious to them. If you only pull out your Bible for Sunday mornings 
and have to blow off the cover, your kids are watching. They can see by your example what you really love with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Secondly, devotions. Look at verse 6. Deuteronomy 6, 6, what, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So the follow-up to loving the Lord your God is to love his word and to love it so much that we are implanting it in our heart. They shall be on our heart. Not, notice, not on our minds. Now, that's, that's a good thing to have God's word in your mind. It's a good thing to memorize scripture. It's a good thing to be meditating on it, but it's more important that we have it on our heart, still our mind, but it's really the affection aspect of our mind, right? Have it in our affections. We love it. We don't just read it every day because it's a duty. We don't just pick it up because I have to, to be a good Christian, because I always have and I must perform so my heavenly Father is happy with me. We do it because we want to meet God in the text. That's why we do it. Do your children ever see you spending time with God? And some parents may choose to read Scripture at work. Your kids are watching, so why not read it at home where they can see? Or maybe you read it after your kids go to bed. Why not read it before they go to bed when they can see? The kids need to see you spending time with the Lord. Family devotions is another area that people do different things. I know I grew up uh, in our home growing up. We read a chapter of the Bible every single night. And it was always four verses. I don't know why it was five, not five or not three, but it was always four verses. Kind of messed with your head when you're younger and you daydream and then you wonder, oh, is it my turn? Oh, wait. It's been silent for a while. I guess it's my turn. I don't know what verse we're at, right? And it's verse 16 again. Where have you been, right? And that, 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 those were our devotions and they were good. I still remember them. I still remember the habit of them. Uh, we don't practice them the same way today. One of the things that I noted, just my observations of what might have been missing from that, was application. Rather than spending time just reading the text, why not discuss the text and see how it applies to life, right? Um, it may be through conversations at the dinner table, or bedtime stories, or in the morning at breakfast time, reading some kind of a devotional, some kind of practical lesson from Scripture to the kids, making sure the Word of God is getting into them. There's no set way to do this, but it starts with the Word of God being in our hearts first. And uh, we can do this in response to honest questions from the kids when things come up that they're wondering about. But devotion should never be drudgery in your home. Never be that thing, oh, we've got to read the Bible again. Here we go. You don't want your kid growing up thinking that spending time with God and his word is something you just have to plow through. Now, there might be occasions and seasons for that, but we need to teach them by example that to love the word, to love meeting God as he reveals himself to us. Bible reading should be good. It should be exciting. It should be a time when we... We tell the stories of Scripture and speak about what they mean to us and what they, what they teach us and so on. So we need to make sure that while Bible reading might be good, it may miss the point of demonstrating how the Bible works in life. Next is education. Notice verse 7. Now, Moses says, you shall teach them diligently. Now that they're in your heart, you love them, teach them diligently to your children. And that, by the way, once they're in your heart, should come very naturally shouldn't have to be something that you have to set an alarm on your 
phone to remind you, okay, I've got to teach the kids something today. What am I going to teach? If it's in your heart, you're meditating on it, it's going to come out at the dinner table. And she'll talk of them, Moses says, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Right? So always remember that Deuteronomy 6 places the responsibility of educating your children squarely on your shoulders as parents. And regardless of the school of choice that you have made, it is your responsibility to teach your kids. And someday, whichever teacher you chose for them to have will not be the one ultimately responsible for your child, it will be you. And sometimes we think that if we can trust the education system, then we don't have to worry about it because someone else is doing it for us. That is wrong thinking. Moses is very clear, this is for parents to be teaching their young people at home. And that might mean whatever school they go to or whatever schooling system they're in, it might mean that you're talking about it at the dinner table. What was you know, something you learned today that you remember? It, it's going to mean engaging with them and engaging with the curriculum that they are learning. You are responsible ultimately and primarily for the education and for the training of your child. All right, the next one. Conversations. Again, notice verse 7. He said, not only will you teach them, but you will talk of them. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So, when you sit in your house, even when you're relaxing, even after a hard day's work, you're sitting at home, you have a responsibility to talk with your kids about the Word of God. Now, that could even be, and I've made a practice of watching different movies and different TV shows with the kids and spending time talking to them about what is being taught to us or preached at us in that movie. What is Hollywood trying to tell us? And then engaging with that with, okay, what does the Word of God say? Where, where are they right? Where are they wrong? And so on. You're sitting, you're relaxing, and yet at the same time, you're sitting in your house, you're talking diligently with your kids about a Christian and a biblical worldview. He says, when you walk by the way, so when you're out in public, when you're driving in the car to whatever appointment it is, or piano lesson, or hockey practice, or whatever it is, you're driving in the car, you're talking with them about things. You're asking them questions, asking them what they think about a certain issue that's come up in the culture. What do you think about this? What does God's word say about this? Moses says, when you lie down, bedtime. By the way, bedtime is a key opportunity. It seems to be that is the time when your kids are processing their day and things are calming down. And we have found just by experience that that is an excellent time, an excellent opportunity to just listen to the questions come out. They're, they're slowing down, their minds are slowing down, they're getting ready to sleep, and quite often that's when the things that bothered them through the day will suddenly come to the surface. And there's opportunities to talk with them. And when you get up, Moses says, in the morning, first thing, it should be things that we talk about before they start their day. Talk of these things at all times is basically what Moses is saying. Use everyday conversations to point out 
the gospel and fill in the picture of a biblical worldview. And routine conversations, use them to ask good questions. Find out what your child is thinking. And that means we have to avoid asking questions that get a yes or a no or a good response, right? How was your day at school? Good. All right, that didn't work, right? We have to ask things. Okay, so what was something you learned in history class today that might relate to what we're facing in our own society right now? And actually get them starting to think. Oh, what did you learn in history today? What was it, right? And get them talking about uh, what they've learned. And, and once they're engaged, they're interested. It's not just you giving a lecture. It's they're interested. They're into it. Next, uh, number five, visuals. All right, verse eight. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's interesting. And I think this is more than just hanging scripture texts in a frame on your wall so that it's always there for them to see. That's great, that's wonderful, but there's something very key about taking ordinary objects in the world and attaching God's word to them. I don't wanna stretch this text too far, but I think there is somewhat of an application in the idea of whether it's nature or finances or sports or an object in the house or traffic or music or a movie as we've talked about already and using those things again to bring the Word of God forward into their minds again. Everywhere they look, there's something about the truth of God's Word that relates to the world that they live in, and it fills them. Just recently, we were discussing the process of buying a house because we are moving very shortly, and the subject of what it means to make a down payment, and it just struck me, uh, the idea of a down payment is that what the New Testament talks about uh, is the idea of the Holy Spirit as a down payment or the first fruits that God gives to his people that proves that one of these days we're going to get the full thing. So the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. We get a little taste of heaven right now. It's a down payment, but it's not the real thing. The real thing comes later when we move into the house. Just a way to... You see, quite often what we're doing is we're looking for passages and then we're wondering, okay, how can I illustrate the passage? But what if we took everyday structures like a chair and the idea of sitting on a chair and used it to illustrate what faith is, what faith in Christ is, right? So we're not just looking at scriptures and saying, okay, how will I illustrate this to my kid? Once the word of God is in our hearts and we're meditating on it, it's very, very surprising how often you will see things in real life or things in your conversations that you'll say, that reminds me of what Scripture says here. And it leads into a lesson of some kind. That's something that all Christians should be practicing and be able to do. Jesus did this. He was always doing this. Consider the lilies. Consider the birds. He told men who were out cleaning their fishing nets, come with me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men, Right? He was using everyday objects right in front of them, right in front of their face, to say, this is what I want for you. 
It was an illustration. He wasn't going off looking for a scripture and then saying, how am I going to illustrate this scripture? He was using the object right in front of him to say, this illustrates truth that I'm trying to give to you. And we need to, that, that is just a habit that can be cultivated over time, if we get that into our mind. I still remember I was working, I was, I was ministering with a, another man that was a bit of a mentor to me, and I still remember we'd be in conversations, especially with new converts, new Christians, new disciples, and uh, they would be discussing problems or challenges in their life that they were facing that very day, and without fail, in every single one of these conversations, I watched him just turn it at some point. He might listen for like 45 minutes. He might actually listen to their story for about 45 minutes. And eventually he would say, you know, that reminds me of a scripture. And he would turn to the scripture, he'd read it, and then he would apply it to their situation right in front of them. And over time, as I watched him do this, and I was just soaking it in, it was like, wow, that is effective. That's an effective way to talk to people. And you know what it requires? It requires getting the word of God into your heart, as Moses said. Number six, the church's role. I did want to note this, and I know it's not directly in the text, but in verse 20, Moses says that when your son's son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes, and so on. Uh, in verse 24, and the Lord commanded us to do all these things, all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Statutes, testimonies, rules. The kids are going to go with their dad to make a sacrifice. They're taking an animal down to the temple, down to the tabernacle. They're watching the animal get slain or killed. They're watching blood flow and they're saying, Dad, what is this all about? Why these rules? Where did they come from? Why do we have them? So they would gather with the congregation and they would do these things and it would spark questions. That's why it's so important to have our children always with the people of God and asking questions. Why are people getting baptized? What does that mean? Or what, what is it with the bread and the cup on Sundays, the communion? What does that mean? What is the meaning of that? As we have them under sound preaching and worshiping, why do people raise their hands and worship? What's that all about? Those are questions that we can answer as we bring our children to gather with God's people. It's such a priority. It has to be a priority. You can't expect your children to grow up to be worshipers and believers, faithful believers, followers of Jesus Christ, if you haven't had them with God's people gathered in the local church. It's an absolute priority. So make God's house First priority in the life of your family. It should be the center of everything uh, you do. Your family should center around your church family and ministry. Make sure your children are making solid friendships with other children and other God-centered, other God-centered households. That's key. All right. Lastly, I just want to take a few moments to look at the priority of prayer. 
Because again, the heart is not neutral. There is no guarantee that any of these practical steps, any of these practical applications are going to somehow produce fruit. Now, for the most part, they should. They should produce fruit, but not always. I was just watching a video yesterday of, of a, a young man who likes to get on TikTok, and he's got many, many followers now, and he just berates, berates Christianity, it's evil. People who say someone can go to hell for sinning are more evil than the people that they say are going to hell, and so on, and mocking Christianity, and then I found out he is the son of a very well-known pastor in the United States, and my heart broke. And actually, it terrifies me, because my kids aren't fully raised yet. There are no guarantees, but in a vertical family, we trust God. We follow his word, we obey his word, we trust him for the results. Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, I planted, and Apollos over there, he watered, but God is the one who gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. So you can do all the work of raising your kids to be worshipers, but it's really not up to you how they turn out. Ultimately, he says, only God who gives the growth is anything. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, yes. You will give account for how well you responded and obeyed God's word in raising your children and in relating to your spouse. That is true. We will receive wages for our labors. We are God's fellow workers. Paul says to the Corinthians, they are God's field, God's building, but it is God who gives the growth. So what do we do? We pray. Everything we do, we soak it in prayer. And whether it's church or education or devotions, all of that, those are only ways to plant and water. That's all they are. But we pray. It has to be the priority. God must give the growth. He is the one who brings life. So first of all, we pray in front of them. In Luke 11, Luke gives an account of Jesus praying in a certain place. And when he was finished, Luke 11, verse 1, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He was praying in front of them. And again, Christianity is an imitative faith. And they were watching him. And they said, you know what? We want to pray like you. Teach us to pray. They were intrigued by watching him pray. Don't be afraid to pray in front of your kids. They need to see it. They need to, it needs to be a very natural thing in your home, something very common in your home, always happening. Mom's praying, dad's praying. It's just common. That's what they do. It's like breathing to them. They didn't see that in other religious leaders who prayed. They didn't see the type of praying that Jesus did. So, does your relationship with God attract your kids to want the same thing? Do they see you praying and do they get to listen to you pray? Those are very key. Secondly, teach them to pray. So, well, how did Jesus respond in Luke 11? Well, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and 
Lead us not into temptation. So teach your kids to go to God for everything they need. When they come to us with anxieties, with worries, the first thing we say is, how should we pray about this? Get them to pray. Teach them to pray. Teach them that that is the first instinct they should have. Teach them to pray at the supper table, how to give thanks for, to God for the food on the table and for the day that we've just had. Jesus taught his disciples through a pattern. It wasn't just repeat after me or recite this like a parrot. He was teaching them a pattern of how to pray. And there's more in that, but we don't have time for that tonight. Number three, pray with them. Pray with them. So all through the New Testament, we understand that Christianity was a household activity. Quite often when the leader of the home was converted and saved, the rest of the home believed and were saved as well. And it was a household activity. Many households served God together. That's what they did. So it should be very commonplace, again, in the home to pray with the kids and have the kids pray as well. So when we have prayer nights here at the church, it shouldn't be just, you know, leave the kids at home. Oh, we've got to find a sitter. Bring the kids with you. Have them sit here. Have them try and pray, and so on. But we need to be praying with them. I remember during COVID, during the initial lockdown, we had a prayer night. It was online. It was streamed. And we had a great time at home with our kids, just praying around the circle together with all the, the prompts that were coming up. So make sure that that is an activity that is being developed. Make it normal in their life. Make it normal for them to hear their own voice pray so that it's not strange to pray in front of other people. Uh, and finally, pray for them. Pray for them. Timothy was a son in the faith to Paul. Paul was a father figure, like a spiritual father to Timothy. And Paul said to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I'm sure you worry about your kids or your grandkids or your nieces and nephews or other kids, maybe in your Sunday school class. You might worry about them, but turn that anxiety into prayer. Philippians 4 makes it very clear. Don't be anxious for anything. But with thanksgiving, make your supplications known to God. Right? Turn that anxiety to prayer. Respond in prayer. Don't ever stop praying for your children. Pray specifically for their daily needs. Don't just pray in general, oh Lord, please bless Billy. But pray specifically for what Billy's facing today, right now. And how that might lead him to Christ. Lead him to become more of a worshiper if he's already a believer. Pray for wisdom in knowing how to guide them. Keep alert. Ephesians 6, 18 makes it very clear. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Keep alert. Watching what your kids are watching, where they're at, what they're talking about, who their friends are. Keep alert, and as you're alert, continually be soaking everything in prayer to God because God is the one who gives the growth. And that, folks, is what it looks like to restore the vertical family. And we've uh, come full circle with all six of these items. 
And over six sessions, we've looked at God's word about God's way to restore relationships, both marital and family relationships, that are stained by sin and selfishness. The question is tonight, how will we respond? Should be apparent by now that the pathway to healing and fulfillment is not the path of least resistance. Obedience is difficult. It will require opening wounds, acknowledging sin, repenting, humbling oneself, turning to Christ, obeying His Word on a daily consistent basis. There's good news. Don't have to do it alone. God has given you everything you need. He's given you Himself as your supply for all that you need. The Father is always there willing to supply everything His children need. He's given His Son as your atonement for all of your sin. Your sin is covered. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we might mess up in relationships, we might say the wrong thing, but the atonement is enough to cover all of our sin. He's given his spirit as our ability to obey, to respond, to do what's right, to endure through painful obedience. And he's given his church as our community of support and accountability to be able to walk this road with others around us who have our back and we have their back. If you're not a believer, you begin by surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you've been wandering and are far from your Father, you begin by turning around and putting one foot in front of the other in repentance and obedience to Christ. And if you're following Christ, then allow yourself to be convicted where needed. There are always areas of your life that have not yet been turned over to the Lordship of Christ. I know that's true for me, and God is still faithful in exposing those areas of my life that I need to repent from and turn from. And pour out your life for the glory of God. That's what it looks like to restore the vertical family. All right. Thank you for coming back. And uh, do I need to... In introduce our couple tonight. Pastor Chris and his wife sure. Jul Julianne have joined us. Welcome. Thanks. By the way. Um, and we want to start off obviously by just getting a little bit of a glimpse into your family and your experience. Mm -hmm. So let's start there with just uh, how many kids, how old, boys, girls, what stage of life they're currently at and so on. Yeah, so we have five children, a nine-year-old son, a seven-year-old daughter, a five-year-old daughter, a three-year-old son, and then one that we haven't met yet, so. Which is good. a son. A son, yes. Yeah, yeah, there we go. I don't know if we told everybody that yet, but anyways, you know now, you're the first to know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Very good. How long have you been married? We have been married for <laughs> our a, a, good, a good amount of time. <laughs> so feels like just, uh, anyways, yeah. no, uh, 10 and a half years. So 10 and a half, almost 11 years this fall, eight, uh, October 8th, so um, is when we got married. So, so yeah, our kids, we had kids pretty quickly after mm -hmm. we got married. Um, we were pretty young when we first got married, when we first, when we, when we got married. Yeah. Um, and so, and we kind of had 
and there was a whole lot of factors going on, but we, we really thought it'd be fun to be young when our kids are young. So if the yeah. Lord would give us kids, we'd have kids, and such is, that, that's how it worked out. So we were really grateful. Yeah, you never know. You might still be young when you have grandkids. Yeah, yeah it's true. That would be really nice. So <laughs> it's like all these people warned us in some way, or warned us. They're like, if you have kids young, you basically don't have the same kind of resources, mm-hmm. but the kids don't really care. So it's not that big a deal. That's but, true. Uh, at least as long as you don't let them, uh, as long as that's not the attitude you have. So, okay. But yeah. Okay, so my first question is for both of you. How did the two of you recognize a spiritual burden um, to raise your children for God's glory, and, and how did that kind of press upon you? Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting, Andrew, that you mentioned that in your talk um, about when you guys really mm-hmm. felt, you felt the burden um, when you were pregnant with your first, and uh, we were sort of reflecting on that and saying, I don't really remember a moment when it, mm-hmm. I felt a heaviness of like, oh, this is a huge responsibility, maybe because we had kids like right away and didn't really have, like we weren't established in careers or, um, and I think for myself, um, even honestly in just the last couple of years, it's really suddenly become a burden, realizing that we're raising our kids in a world that is not what we expected. Um, And yeah, it's become a lot more real to me in the last little bit. um, just that I heard someone say it, that we're raising, we're re- getting them ready for battle, right? We're equipping yes. them for the yeah. battle ahead. And that's never been more real to me than right now. Yeah, I, I would say it's, it's interesting because it maybe is a little bit of when they're a baby, you're like, I got this. I can totally shape the way these kids turn out. And then when they start to get personalities and attitudes and talk back and you realize how absolutely impossible it is, humanly speaking, to shape the heart of your child. I think it's, I would agree, it's more like in the last few years, and especially with one of our children in specific that has given us more pushback than the others, um, it's all of a sudden like, okay, wow, Uh, this is a lot more burdensome in Mm -hmm. a sense, right? Because before it, it kind of feels like, oh, you have a child and you get to, help design how this child turns out. And there's a truth to the influencing that, but I, yeah, it's very, very, uh, it does, I guess, settle on, or has settled on me more the further we go along and kind of realizing, especially, yeah, each child is so different. It's one thing you have, you have a boy and then you have a girl and you kind of expect a boy and a girl to be different. But then when you have a girl and a girl and they're different, you're like, wait, and then you have a boy and a boy that are different. And I'm sure we'll find that out again, yes. Lord willing, with a boy and a boy and a boy, and you like figure out they're all different personalities. So yeah, it, uh, and also as you spiritually mature too, and you realize the weight of eternity in a more substantial way, right? Yeah. So, and you realize you have friends that lose kids at a young age and you think, well, I have until they're adults mm-hmm. to see them convert to the Lord, come to faith and you don't, and that's, that's can be, you know, overwhelming in one sense, sure. but then at the yeah. same time, you go back to the sovereignty of God, and yeah. Um, yeah, his goodness in it all. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Have you, have you ever struggled with a sense of inadequacy? Like, this is, this is more than we can handle, mm-hmm. and uh, if so, how, how have you been able to cope with that? 
There are moments every single day, <laughs> absolutely, where I'm like, why, why do I have to be responsible for yeah. this? Um, yeah, actually, no, you said it really well with the burden. It is really a lot, a lot of times in discipline and realizing that how you were saying that a lot of the, um, you know, the evil is, is from within our own hearts mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. having to deal with that in our children yeah. and what comes out of us as parents, as, you know, we're dealing with, <clears throat> sorry, as we're dealing with that, you know, seeing yeah. um, that we are, they just bring something out even in, like, the, even in being married, that's a really big change, but becoming a parent, that brings something totally different mm -hmm. out. And um, it's very humbling, and I often, uh, well, it drives you to prayer, right? And yeah. I, I'm grateful that God's grace will still cover my failings as mm -hmm. a mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and obviously there's, <laughs> I've had conversations in the past where it's like, guys often they're like, I got this, right? But then actually when you hit the moments, you're like, no, I don't. And those moments when you also realize, you're like, I don't have all knowledge. I don't have, I'm not the Holy Spirit. Um, those are the moments where you're like, you just, you do realize how powerless you are. Um, and that is, yeah, it drives you to prayer. It also, I think one of the other things that I've maybe realized is it drives you also to like the broader church family and realizing there's something other people can give my kids that I can't give my kids, yeah. which is quite, as a parent, it's hard because you want to do that for your kids. At least I do. I want to be able to be the, the mentor, the, the best friend, the pastor, the everything for my kids and then realizing, no, I actually have to let them uh, be discipled as well by other people and, tr and trust them to it. And um, I can still remember the times when other parents have, you know, called out my kids for things mm -hmm. and being like, oh man, I didn't catch that first. That's so embarrassing or, <laughs> or whatever else, right? And yes. uh, just realizing we need the Lord and we need each other. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's really important. We were just having a conversation the other day with one of our kids about um, the fact that we want our children to have outside influences, mm -hmm. godly influences, obviously, um, not secular influences, but yeah. outside influences in their lives uh, that they can go to and confide in and seek counsel from because we're very aware of the fact that we have blind spots too, yeah. right? So yeah. it's, it's good for them to be well-balanced that way. Yeah. I think especially as we've taken on uh, schooling our children at home, um, then you're taking even more responsibility for it. Yeah. And you start to realize I'm not good at everything, and I don't have to be good at everything. You only have to be good, really, at worshiping the Lord as good as you can be, obviously, um, and leading your kids to that. But I've been so blessed, and I was actually looking out tonight, and I'm like, there's so many leaders from our kids' club ministry here mm -hmm. that have poured into our kids, and so I'm just so thankful for yeah. the influence they've had and just the blessing that that is because they, different personalities help to shape them, and yeah, it's a... A very good thing. So that is key. Yeah. So what would you say some of the habits that you have built into your daily routine mm -hmm. to keep your kids engaged with scripture and the gospel? You wanna go first? Um, well, 
We do, I think mealtimes are very important. Yes. Uh, we are establishing that we do that together. Um, in the morning, generally, we read scripture together. And uh, one thing actually that uh, some friends did with their kids was when they, their kids first learned to read, their reward was actually their own Bible. And I thought, that's so cool, because that's, you know, this is like the most important book you're ever gonna own. Um, these are the most important words you're ever gonna to mm -hmm. learn and read. And so we've done that with our older two. Well, I guess we were pretty late with our son on that, but. Um, yeah, we came by the idea after yeah. he was reading, but you got <laughs> um, the Bible. Yeah, yeah. and there, and Christopher involves them in, mm -hmm. in reading as well. Like they'll get out their Bibles as well mm -hmm. and they'll read mm -hmm. um, and they're excited to do that still at this point. Um, I also do a little devotional usually at lunchtime, again, mealtimes with them. It's just easy when they're all focusing on mm -hmm. their food and it's quiet, their mouths are full. I can um, put... It's <laughs> <laughs> a good I strategy. Can, yeah. so. Uh, put on a devotional yeah. with usually there's it's like kid oriented and there's an application yeah. and we usually talk about it and um, Just some practical stuff. Yeah, exactly. Sorry was the question engaged with scripture yeah. or engaged? Yeah, scripture and the gospel. Scri okay, because yeah. I was gonna say one of the most powerful things I think we've done is music mm -hmm. Just like from the very get-go even songs that our parents played to us as, as kids like Keith Green music that or Steve Green, sorry, not, uh, Keith Green's great too, I'm sure, but some Steve Green music and stuff that, like, it's straight scripture put to songs, and you play it on repeat, and it gets a little bit over the top on long car rides and stuff, yeah. but honestly, it's, it's so good, and actually, even as an adult, you're like, I feel like I know so much more scripture because of these songs, right? It's just, that song is always stuck to that scripture passage for the rest yeah. of your life, but uh, no, that's a huge, been a huge blessing, and we've been make up little songs around, or I should say, I make up little songs around our house um, for scripture. Like, we'll read a passage, and you throw it to a tune, and the, 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 I guess it just makes me so happy when, like, my kids are going to bed, and they're singing the tune, and you're like, yes, that's so cool. Like, they're, they're singing God's word, right? And it's, uh, yeah, it's a really neat thing. So I think those have been, like, super key. And then, like, bedtimes. You mentioned bedtimes. Mm -hmm. um, at bedtimes, I just... I don't know where it started necessarily, but we just ask them questions and, you know, try to drive home, not just Bible questions, like we'll ask, like, how many animals did Moses take on the ark? And then they're like, hey, wait, it wasn't Moses, it was Noah, right? And then they start asking us the same questions back. So, like, funny questions like that, but other questions too, like, okay, if you had to choose between, you know, one friend and a million dollars, what would you choose and why? And then talking about the value of friendship from the Bible, uh, yeah. explaining how friendship's so valuable. Or, you know, even, even asking questions like, would you follow Jesus if uh, all your friends made fun of you? Would you follow Jesus if mom and dad said Jesus was not real? Mm -hmm. Like, and trying to like, you follow Jesus no matter what. So, yeah. but those questions and that, that time is a really, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a neat time. That and, takes uh, some thought, doesn't it? Like, you have to put some thought yeah. into those questions. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I find it's just, to me, it's like the overflow of the thoughts that are on your mind already. Sure. So, like, through COVID and all that we went through, it was so interesting to see how our kids were processing it. I'm not usually an external processor. I, like, process stuff more internally and don't 
just talk it out. But the blessing with really young kids and starting the pattern young is that they, they're not, I don't know, they're not going to tweet what you say. They're not going to be, they, they don't even laugh at what you say. Like, if you're just talking and it doesn't make sense, they just listen, right? So, um, most often, well, they, they, do point, they do point out inconsistencies now. <laughs> and yeah, that's, they're really good at that. They're really good. Or like, grammar. <laughs> anyways, um, anyways, it's just fun. But yeah, the questions do, and like, you want to be perf purposeful with your questions, right? Yes. So, yeah. and not just ask the same questions over and over again, but thinking, yeah, thinking through how do you want them to develop and what kind of challenges they'll face. Mm -hmm. um, but then going back to God's word, obviously, mm -hmm. so. But you'll even take, um, maybe I shouldn't say this, but. Um, you'll read like a passage of the Bible and be like, I'm going to say something, like I'm going to read something wrong and you need to be listening. Yeah. Like, to <laughs> I don't know it. if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> so, but, but we like, you know, catch yeah. the false doctrine. Ca ca catch the, it's like you're reading through a passage and then you throw Windsor in there instead of yeah. Bethlehem. Oh. They're like, wait, it wasn't Windsor, right? So, yes. like, are you listening, right? Um, yeah, just training them to like listen, listen hard. Yeah, listen critically. Yeah. So it's kind of fun. But those are, yeah, those are some patterns. Like, and Julianne and I, this is also a blessing. We talk a lot. And so I think that helps in the relationship with the kids that they're around mm -hmm. biblical conversations. We'll have, we don't really hide conversations from our kids unless it's mm -hmm. about, you know, I don't know, something that would be not <laughs> good for them to say all of a sudden in the kids club room, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah. obvi no, obviously, like you just talking very openly and even about things you're thinking about, like we've talked about moving to the county um, and just processing that out loud. What are the pros and the cons sure. of that as a Christian and how does that, how does being a Christian inform our decisions? Um, yeah, so I think those are some of the ways anyways. Yeah, those are some but, very good creative mm -hmm. ideas. Mm -hmm. what, would we have any to add to the list? I've, I, I was thinking um, of utilizing things that have been created and produced by other ministries. So our kids often go to bed listening to Adventures in Odyssey. Yeah. Um, they have, we have an account, and they get it infinitely. So they're listening to it all day so, long. Uh, produced by, it's a dramatization in a mm -hmm. fictional town called Odyssey, and it's produced by Focus on the Family, and it's got many lessons in it, and they, they just absorb these stories. I grew up with it, right? So now listening, watching them, you know, playing Lego, listening to Odyssey, or going to bed listening to Odyssey, that's quite often, um, or the Focus on the Family Radio theater is another yeah. one, right? They have the C.S. Lewis stories. I was thinking too, and I know Julianne, you've done this, but reading to your kids, not just from scripture, but taking Christian yes. literature, uh, whether it's fiction or biographies, and, um, and reading that with your kids, like giving them glimpses into mm -hmm. people who lived for Christ or yeah. um, different ways to convey biblical truths. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think during, well, the lockdowns and everything we were going through, you were reading uh, The Hiding Place, Corey mm -hmm. Ten Boom, in, in World War II in Holland. Um, 
and the idea of civil disobedience and why it's necessary at times and what it's for. And you, you were saying like the, the kids are picking up the similarities between then and now, yeah. between those historical uh, figures and today. So It's really hard telling your kids, though, to like, you disobey here, but you don't disobey here. And yeah. you don't disobey me unless yeah. I tell you to do something God right. doesn't. It's really based on, it's probably age appropriate as well, yeah. right? But you want your kids to be thinking through all of the aspects of what, what do you do when the government tells you to go against God's word and so on, right? So those aspects. So yeah, or Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis, yeah. uh, that kind of literature, just get them into good literature and get their imaginations going. Um, and of course, they obviously reflect a biblical worldview at the same time. Yeah, so I was going to say, I think you read Narnia out loud to the kids, right? And that yeah, was yeah, and that's been one of the like benefits of starting homeschooling is actually having the time for stuff like that. So yeah, we've done lots of reading out loud with the kids, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, good discussions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, would you say, like in all of the the ways in which you are trying to and have them encounter the Word of God and the Gospel and so on. Um, would each of you have a specific role in that? Uh, a few sessions ago we talked about roles in marriage and mm -hmm. parenting and so on. Would you say you both play a specific role in the spiritual formation of your children? And if so, what would that be? What would that look like? Yeah, so like I try to take the lead on things in terms of shaping the culture of our home and the boundaries, and I think our kids are pretty well aware of that. Um, it's funny, like at bedtimes, I have to force myself to like actually stay there and ask questions and not just do the 30 seconds, good night, I love you, bye, see ya. Yeah. Um, so Julian's more natural, well, maybe not. I think you're more naturally nurturing in that way. Yeah, but you have more intentional discussions because by that time of night, I'm like, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I, you know, I don't have energy to think anymore. Yeah. So, so. yeah, no, you're, you're, you definitely, take the lead on having those discussions with them. Yeah, but when it comes to like discipline and stuff, we would both discipline if the child is disciplining in front of you, uh, you would discipline them. If they disrespect you, I usually come in and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> yes. They're like, that is like a category nine sin, so you are in huge <laughs> trouble now. Yeah. Um, so there is like that in terms of authority, but there, it is not a, uh, generally speaking, like, uh, wait till your father comes home and he's going to yes. discipline you, right? right? It's like, you can be a parent disciplining them, so, but yeah, in, in terms of um, roles, maybe, we, maybe we'd benefit from the class more. <laughs> so. We're not going against anything you taught. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it I haven't gotten to lot. watch that one, so, yeah. but, yeah. Good. So, how have you taught your children to pray? Hmm. This one is a very interesting one to me theologically. I remember when our kids were probably, when Ari was, I don't know, three, four years old, I was talking to another pastor and I'm like, I, I have so much challenge with this because I don't teach non-believers to pray. Um, so if we're in the context of our youth group, I was a youth pastor at the church, I don't ask all the kids in the group to pray because not all of them are believers. If they're not a believer, I don't pretend they have a relationship with God mm -hmm. and that they can pray. And I'm like, it's so challenging because I want to teach my children how to pray, but at the same time, if they haven't made a profession of faith in the Lord, 
is the prayer even going higher than the ceiling? And am I teaching them that it's normal to have a non-spiritual prayer where you're just saying words? Like, it's kind of challenging. And so I wrestled through that. And I think what I arrived at in some ways was it's okay to teach them to say thank you to God, but that I would be careful about getting them to uh, ask for too much mm -hmm. from him yep. prior to them actually surrendering their lives to him. Sure. Now that's been a little bit, it's, it's kind of interesting because you ask them to, mm -hmm. hey, let's pray and say thank you for the food because I would be quite fine with telling an unbeliever, you, that's a good thing from God, say thank you to God for it. Um, but that, that has been a challenge, arguably, and at the end of it, I'm like, it's kind of messy because I, I also want them to say the words and be kind of accustomed to it before, well, not before, yeah, before they're converted. It's sometimes I'm like, and also I don't always know exactly, like we're still trying to wrestle through our, where our kids are at because several of them have made what I would say are somewhat, like they've, they've acknowledged Jesus Christ as Savior, but you're always kind of wondering, hmm, are they just saying that because they also memorized all these passages of Scripture and it's just rote, like they, they can kind of say it. So it has been, I, I think that's been challenging. So what we did early on is we wrote out psalms and verses on prayer cards mm -hmm. and we were like, well, at the very least they can pray that. Yeah. So, um, so they can pray a prayer of thanks, but then like, you know, they can pray, Lord, we thank you that every word of God proves true and you're a shield to those who take refuge in you. So boom, they've got scripture memorized. They're praying the words of God back to him and that's been good. And then as they express more like dependence on the Lord, they're, they're actually now asking for, you know, aunt so-and-so or mm -hmm. this, you know. And it, it's kind of neat because they're actually genuine requests. They're not just yeah. like, um, they're, they're actually starting to engage thinking, well, this is an issue. We should pray about it. We should, we should actually bring it to God because he can answer that prayer. And that, that then is like, okay, that's faith, right? Because they're actually going to him asking for something because they believe he can answer it, mm -hmm. not just because they were told to, that kind of thing. But yeah, that's a very interesting uh, conflict that we have to deal with theologically. Mm -hmm. yeah. I would agree. I was just going to say that as you're talking, I think we wrestled through that. Um, as well, because that would have been our view that you don't teach sinners to cry out to God unless it's repentance. But it, there is something unique about raising children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I think I would go back to Jesus bringing the children to him, blessing them, and the disciples are saying, send them away, send them away. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, no, no, bring them to me. Yeah. Suffer the children to come to me, for of such is the kingdom mm -hmm. of God. Um, and teaching our children that Jesus does want you to come to him, mm -hmm. right? That, that way should be open. And yeah. eventually they place their faith in him. That's mm -hmm. what we're aiming for. So yeah. I think we probably arrived at the same place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And definitely felt the same kind of conflict there yeah. with that. I would say if I knew one of my children was not saved, like they had clearly yeah. expressed rebellion against the Lord, yes. I would not ask them to pray at the dinner table. I would not ask them to fake it for yes. me. Uh, to go through the motions because I think that's totally that that's encouraging your children towards hypocrisy, yeah. right? And that's absolutely not good. But yeah. another, I, I when you you forwarded this question to us, I was thinking about one of the things that 
this is, and this take it or leave it, but I think it's something to think about that I've thought about a lot is when we teach our kids to pray, you're often praying in front of them first. And we've chatted about like, do we have a, a kid-centric prayer or a God-centric prayer? So, and the way I can tell which it is, is my tone of voice changes. So when you're praying with kids, all of a sudden I was like, dear Jesus, we just pray today for mommy to have a good, and you're like, I am praying to my Father in heaven, and I don't talk like that anywhere else. So why would I talk like that in front of my kids? I don't want my kids to say, dear Jesus, like this. I want them to talk to the Lord. So, and I've even, it's kind of weird because I'm more I'm looking at it like they're a spectator looking in on something. So and I thought about our relationship with Julianne. So I teach them how to talk to their mother pro- appropriately, but then I don't talk to Julianne in front of the kids and be like, hey, mommy, how are you? Are you doing okay? Like, I don't do that. Yes. So similarly yeah. with God, I've been, even when I'm praying for Julianne, I've actually even tried to get away from saying, we just want to pray for mom today that she has a good day. Because who am I talking to there? I'm actually talking to the kids. It's like, I can pray for Julianne, or, and I'm not hard and fast on that, but it is, all of a sudden I was realizing, and I'm finding in all these different contexts, I'm actually praying more concerned about the audience listening than I am about actually Mm -hmm. dialoguing with the Lord. So so prayer, yeah, it's an an interesting thing. I hope our kids develop good practices, because I know so, so much of what we say in prayer is, inherited from the practices of our parents even as i pray for breakfast i'm saying phrases i'm like that's what my dad said (laughs) that's exactly what my dad said every morning and when i was a kid i was like dad why do you always say the same thing every morning (laughs) like just provide for our needs today it's like that's his language well it's not a bad prayer um but anyways so i wanted to set a good example but it's like biblical language. So it is. Good. I know. Exactly. Give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> and that's true. That's if my true. dad said it and the Bible said it, it's good. So, but hopefully we can set patterns where, yeah, they're, they're praying meaningfully uh, to the Lord. Yeah. But anything to add, Julianne, to that subject? No. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> I covered your notes. Sorry. Well, let's talk about examples. So we're talking tonight about how crucial it is for parents to live out mm-hmm. an example. Um, what does that look like in your home? And especially, I think, I think what is really crucial is when you have not been a good example, mm-hmm. um, how have you approached that with your kids? Mm-hmm. What, what have you done to express that to them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's really important that we expect as much of ourselves as we do of our kids. I know this is more a discipline thing, but that's what first comes to mind for me. Um, that when something isn't going well, uh, I have had to apologize to my kids mm-hmm. often. You know, like, this is what happened, this is where it went wrong, this is what you did, but this is how I reacted poorly to that, and this is how I sinned, and yeah. bringing it back to like the Lord's standards, um, mm-hmm. and that's that's often also where we have the opportunity to pray together, mm-hmm. um, 
and sometimes it's me leading one of my children in prayer to ask for forgiveness and sometimes it's me also asking for forgiveness mm -hmm. um, and I think exemplifying that is um, I mean that's I'm not pretending that I'm perfect to mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. and so being able to show them that I'm willing to to humble myself and repent of my own sins yeah. is is really big yeah exactly the same thing <laughs> so it is it's it's really hard to say sorry to your kids especially when they've done something wrong and you're like if i say sorry right now i'm about to undermine they're gonna they're gonna use that against me <laughs> so um no that is it is difficult i find it so humbling so many times in discipline you've got your child in front of you or i've got our child in front of me and I'm saying the words out of my mouth to them. And I'm like, oh, those are for me. <laughs> like, yeah. so frustrating. Because you're like, you need to not overreact to things. Like, <laughs> I'm overreacting <laughs> to things right now, right? Uh, it can be so, yeah. yeah. Or, or submission to authority or you, you name it, right? And uh, then you're like, oh, that's for me. I needed that, right? So, um, but yeah, I think that that example, and it comes out not just in discipline, it comes out, you know, all the time, mm -hmm. hopefully anyways, all the time, that they don't, they don't view us as perfect people. Mm -hmm. um, certainly we tell them that, and they would know that and point that out. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I still remember, it just brings back a memory of you from a few years ago. Do you remember the Sunday you were leading communion? Oh, yeah. yeah, I do, oh, actually. Yeah. That was so bad. <laughs> well, but it so was good. so good. It was so redemptive. I, we so had bad. just come, I think we had just arrived here not long that, before yeah. that, right? I was, yeah. so just yeah. to, I was thinking the exact same memory. Yeah. 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 What are you guys talking about? Do you want to tell the story? I don't oh, want to man, tell it for so, you. So, okay, the problem with being a pastor is that you have a responsibility on Sunday morning, and so I dropped one of our kids off in the classroom and I was really, I was rude. I was rude and impatient and all that. And then it was because I was running late to lead communion. <laughs> so I got up and I was starting to lead communion and then we always, or often, will say things like, you know, if you're not right with somebody, you need to make it right with them. You need to confess your sin. And so I don't, there's, there's well, obviously I've never had to do that since, Lord, thank you, Lord. But in the moment, I'm like, I somehow have to make it from communion to apologize to my kid and get back and lead communion because I can't take communion until I do that. And so I don't, I don't, I don't know. If, I think maybe I mentioned it. I don't know if I mentioned it or something. So basically, I got to run down the hallway for a second. And it was, I guess they had extra time to contemplate their own sin. But uh, no, you, I, I you booked did. it down to the... You said, yeah. you said exactly what was on your conscience yeah. and you said I can't take communion right now I need to make things right with my son yeah. and uh, you said then I'll take communion after that yeah. and to us that was so impressive we had never seen that level of vulnerability before mm. especially in front of the church yeah. um, but it, if we remembered it, <laughs> it, it just to, the example that shows to your children mm -hmm. as, as they're growing up that dad and mom are very sensitive mm -hmm. to sin and they're they're willing to admit that it's mm -hmm. huge yeah okay so 
Would you have any examples you're willing to share of conversations with your kids that have flowed into a lesson about God? And maybe following up on that, is there a way that you found to kind of prepare for those conversations? I don't have like a specific example that I'm thinking of, but um, I think just in preparing for those conversations, I, I feel like they just happen all the time, naturally, right, as they're asking questions or as you're talking about even what's going on. The kids have been very aware the last couple of years of what's going on in, in, in the world and, and uh, even just this afternoon when I was filling up the tank, and I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> the kids were all in the vehicle and they're like, what's wrong, mommy? I'm just like, the gas prices is so expensive. Yeah. And why? Oh, because of our prime minister. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, I have to be careful. But, um, but, then, but then it was it was a good reminder to me, okay, actually, but remember, you know, there's things in the world that make us upset, but and, and Claire's going, I want, I'm going to be the government when I grow up <laughs> so that I can make it better. <laughs> um, but it's like, yeah, until the new heaven and the new earth, there's always going to be problems. But, you yes. know, we're not anxious about this. We're trusting in the Lord. Yep, yep, um, so just all the time. Yeah. Um, and being prepared for that is just in my own life, mm. beginning my day, making sure I'm grounded in mm -hmm. the word. And then I'm, my whole perspective is, is sensitive to, to those opportunities. Yeah, yeah. It is so funny how, like, almost, almost anything you can bring it back around to the Word of God, to, a, a, to what God has done. Um, and so it, it honestly does happen quite a lot, which is fortunate. I, I think it's just neat that God gives us those opportunities. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of a specific one. I thought I had one, but anyways, it slipped my mind for right now, so... Yeah. But God remembers all things. I'll turn that conversation. <laughs> there you go. That's good. Anyways, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it could be as, something as simple as seeing a dead bird and yep. talking about God's yeah. care over his yep. children, you know, even he knows when the sparrows fall, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So, yep. Yeah. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, what, is, what is some of the best advice that both of you have received uh, about raising your kids for God's kingdom? Um, maybe from older Christians, from brothers and sisters, what would you say is advice that sticks out in your mind that has really helped you? Well, one of, I'm so grateful for my parents, uh, and they really impressed upon me anyways. I remember several conversations with my mom, uh, basically talking about there's so many opportunities in the world, there's so many things that you can teach, and her just saying, it, it comes back down to character. So if you can teach your children character, then that will carry them through. So transparency or, uh, you know, a hard work ethic or whatever else. Being, and like there's a verse that my parents had up on the wall all of uh, our childhood. Whatever you do, do so for the glory of God, not for man. Do it unto the Lord and not unto men. Um, I think was the translation. And that mindset really changes everything mm -hmm. because if you're doing it for God's glory and you have character um, for God's glory, that's what character is ultimately, right? Because you're not doing it for praises of man, characters, who you are when no one's looking. 
um, then everything else, if they're not the greatest at this or the greatest at that, it doesn't really matter, right? They'll figure it out if they need to, but if they don't need to, that's fine too, right? But character and ultimately doing things for God's glory, which it's weird because I knew that as a kid, but then now in the last, I don't know, four or five years, really being impressed with everything comes back to giving God glory is just life altering, right? It just, it, it all makes sense. It's like the puzzle pieces all fit and you're like, everything has its place because it points vertically, right? It's been a huge blessing. What was the question? Advice in general? Yeah, or? just some of the best advice that you've received from others mm -hmm. um, about raising kids for God's kingdom. Yeah, um, one that I've thought about a bunch. It's, I guess not. It was it was in a book that I read actually, um, and it was again more about more about discipline, but. Um, I, I've thought about it so many times about looking at your own motives for for how you are treating your children, why you are when you're feeling frustrated with your children or you're angry with your children is it is it an anger because there's something that is offending God or is it an anger because they're inconveniencing your life and I've, I've just had to check my heart many times with that mm -hmm. and um just realizing, you know, that God gave these children to me as my main stewardship right now, and just to be reorienting to, like, really seeing as it, it as an opportunity to make disciples, mm -hmm. and uh, not to be trying to, to uh, I guess, just there's just so much selfishness, right? Yes, <laughs> and yes. Having to yeah. to pray against that. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. good. Okay, so last question that I have, <clears throat> and Chris, if you can address the dads and Julianne, the moms, but what advice would you give mm -hmm. to parents um, starting out and raising their children to be true worshipers and servants of Christ? Man. Um, so, because I already said give God the glory and everything, I can leave that one parked and I can go and look at it something else. Because I have probably like four things, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep the preacher down to one. Um, the, you said it in terms of imitative faith. I think for me it's if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, not, it, it's just attractive. To your kids. They will love the Lord their God. They, they will. It, you, you give them the best foundation for them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. Um, I am so fascinated by how much influence you do have over your children. Like the yeah. things that they like that you can create excitement and enthusiasm around. It's not like a chore. It's like we get to do this. So you know, it, it can be as simple as I get the kids all hyped up about cleaning up the house for mom as a surprise when she comes home. And I'm like, let's clean it up. Like, we could clean it up and she'll be so surprised when they come home. And they get, they actually get hyped about that. And I'm thinking, that works when I think too, like, we get to go serve at church today. Like, we get to, we, we have the opportunity to worship. Like, let's sing this song or let's 
Like, look at God's word. Like, don't you love it? And it's not, you don't want to be contrived or like fake. You're actually like, guys, this is, this is, the Bible says about itself that it's more precious than silver and gold. And if you actually believe it's more precious than silver and gold, that's going to rub off on your kids and going to uh, shape them. So I think it's like the attitude thing, right? Um, if you genuinely think it's a, a drag to go to church, your kids will think it's a drag to go to church. Mm-hmm. And if you genuinely think it's a drag to suffer for the Lord, your kids will think mm-hmm. it's a drag. And so like people have asked before, because they're like, oh, your kids are like pastor's kids, right? And like, that's great. They get like a front row seat to seeing God's life, God transform lives. Like mm-hmm. they, yeah, sure, there's extra sacrifice, but they get to see things up close that a lot of people don't get to see, right? They get to be in their bedroom listening in when we're having conversations in our living room with people yeah. and seeing what God is actually doing. So I just, anyway, then that can be for all, obviously all Christians as they're discipling, but I think the enthusiasm and excitement we have for the Lord is contagious. And so that would be my advice to dads. It's like, take the lead, right? Yes. Um, take the lead on that don't leave the spiritual shepherding up to your wife. You're the culture setter in your home. You set the temperature, the thermostat, so to speak, for how passionate you are about the Lord, what, what your worship looks like. And, uh, and especially new dads, it's super easy with a baby to worship in front of them with no judgment. <laughs> so, and then they'll just take that yeah. as the norm, right? It's a lot harder when you're trying to shift yeah. gears with teenagers and you're like, you didn't do this, and now they don't give you the space to change, but still we must change, like we have to change, right, for God's glory, so anyways, enthusiasm and excitement for the things of God. Yeah, uh, I I was thinking about everyone knowing that motherhood is a sacrifice, um, but taking it further than that and, and thinking really practically, like, when you, like for younger moms, um, becoming a mom for the first time, um, you're sacrificing your sleep, you're sacrificing your body, you're sacrificing your alone time, and it's really easy to get, to feel resentful of those things, but then just remembering that this, like we are called to be living sacrifices, and in that stage, that's what that looks like. And you know, it develops as your kids get older as to what that looks like, but um, sacrifice in a, a worshipful way, like it is, it is worship to the Lord. When we are sacrificing, um, like I was saying earlier, seeing it really as a calling, like motherhood is a calling from the Lord and these children are disciples, you're, you're making disciples for Christ and what a wasted opportunity to be just, if, if everybody knows how much you're sacrificing, then it's not, a wor- like it's not worship. Yeah. Um, if you're having to tell people, you know, look how much I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I feel as, as a mother, too, that I really set, you know, when you're not home for mm-hmm. a lot of the day, that I really set the attitude in the home. And if it's one of the kids can see that I'm actually not content at all in what the Lord has given me right in front of me to do, mm-hmm. then they are not going to... Um, Right, they're not. They're also. They're. They're gonna see that I'm not genuine. You know, if this is, 
this is the work that the Lord has for me than just, um, yeah, doing it as a true sacrifice and um, seeing it as, as a calling. Yeah. That's very good, and that's a good way to sum up really the entire series, what is a vertical family? It is a calling, and it, we have to see it as a calling. We're called by God, whether it's to be husbands, to be wives, to be fathers, to be mothers, and so on and to have that perspective, and then to bring everything under the Lordship of Christ mm -hmm. and go from there. So thank you very much thank you. for being with us tonight. Mm -hmm. Can I ask the two of you to close us out in prayer? Sure. Be great. Do you want to go first? Sure. Okay. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for all the teaching that um, we've been able to have over the past several weeks. We thank you, Lord, for the guidance that you give us in Scripture. Um, for the responsibility that it is to have human relationships, um, but for, um, Lord, the blessing that it is to have this fellowship, marriages and children, um, they are such a blessing and they are refining for us as well. And we just pray that we would um, just be sensitive to uh, what you are trying to teach each of us, Lord, as we take take your word and apply it to our lives in the various relationships we have. And uh, we just thank you that your word is living and active and you are continuing to transform lives even now for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we love you. I, I'm so grateful for the way that you have um, worked in our lives, that you've saved us, that you've called us to yourself, that you've called us your children and that you have uh, made us part of your family and that you've made that uh, abundantly clear that you love us and care for us and that you have um, done so much and sacrificed so much on, for our good. And so we're thankful for that, Lord. We pray that we'd have that same attitude as we uh, parent, as we raise vertical families, that, Lord, we would take the same mind of Christ and uh, sacrifice for ultimately your glory, but also for the good of our children, um, for those we lead. Lord, we pray that you would give us joy in the midst of that. Um, if it's a, a difficult season of life and things aren't going uh, as smooth as we hoped or the way that we'd planned, uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us uh, joy and that uh, awareness of the grace and mercy that you pour out. We're so thankful, Lord, that ultimately uh, we are called to trust you, uh, to be obedient, but to trust you and to pray uh, so we're so thankful that we have that gift. And I just want to commit to you the families uh, that are here, the households, um, maybe even some that are not yet married or are, are perhaps thinking about it, Lord. And I pray that you would bless us, help us to have a Christian view, a biblical view of marriage and the family and children and every aspect of what has been taught here. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another and to uh, be able to support one another in the God-given tasks that you've given us, and to, to steward that holy calling well, Lord. Uh, we want to make a difference in this generation knowing that uh, if we drop the ball, it could be um, obviously very, very detrimental for not just our kids' lives, but uh, generations to come. So help us to be sober uh, in terms of the responsibility you set before us. Help us to be filled with joy and uh, just give us the strength to do it well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks everyone for joining us tonight and mm -hmm. for joining us through the, the nights and I hope it's been encouraging and helpful.
and uh, hopefully it's material that you can take with you and use. So thank you again. Mm -hmm.